science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just happy. Well, I figured it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey guys, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm Erin Barker, Artistic Director of the Story Collider, still filling in for Ben Lilly. This week we're bringing you two stories about identity and science, from a neuroscientist here in New York to an OBGYN working in the South Sudan. Our first story this week is from Devin Collins. It was recorded in May 2017 at Union Hall in Brooklyn, New York. The theme was invisibility. So I'm a scientist, and as far back as I can remember, I've wanted to be one. And for the past few years, especially with like recent events like the March for Science and, and all the attacks that we in the scientific community feel, I've thought about, I've thought so much about why I became a scientist in the first place, and and that naturally leads to what got me into it. Um, and and it really comes down to. Uh, the fact that I actually have like three people to thank for my scientific career. Uh, like any good son, my mother. Uh, a shitty kindergartner. And Gene Roddenberry. Uh, and if you're not down with sci-fi, then Gene Roddenberry, I'll just let you know, is the uh, creator of the original Star Trek series from the 1960s and much of the franchise that grew out of it. I promise this will make sense at some point. Uh, so let me tell you how I figured all of this out. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in a meeting with some colleagues and a professor at my school. And um, I mentor a lot of students uh, during the spring and summer, and it was summer two- 2015. And I brought two of my students with me, Tiana, a brilliant uh, black young woman from Long Island, and Sylvia a Bronx native of Lebanese Jewish descent. And um, so we were in this meeting, I had them with me, and for some reason or another, I don't know, but it was kind of that like crazy summer, uh, it was actually literally, for a little bit of context, the day after Sandra Bland was found in her cell. Um, and so the subject for some reason of, uh, of racism and sexism in the academy came up. And as professors are wont to do, the professor who was leading this meeting started giving a lot of unasked for advice. Uh, and a lot of it centered around you know, dealing with discrimination in the academy. And she, uh, in doing this, was recalling this former trainee of hers, this uh, black woman who was starting her career in the 1980s. And she said, you know, the best advice I ever gave to her was, you know, don't worry. Don't worry about being black in science. Just worry about being a woman in science, and you'll be okay. That's the shittiest advice I've ever heard. It's so terrible. I, I was so incensed, it was almost like I'd never been black before. Like, this, this professor, a white woman, was telling me, was telling my student, was telling other black scientists in the room that we had to check our race at the door, that we could only understand ourselves and our careers through one lens an important lens, gender, but only one. We couldn't bring our whole selves to the lab, right? And that's not true. I know from experience that it's not true. At my home institution, right, uh, in my program, I can count on one hand 
the number of black students other than myself. And I've interacted with over 10 generations of, of grad students. I've met even fewer black postdocs. Just last year, we got our first black full professor head of lab in 116 years of my institution's history. We're funded, black scientists are funded at abysmal rates compared to everybody else. We are mistaken for janitors most of the time, especially black women. I carry my, I have my, my ID in the most accessible place all the time, just in case, just in case somebody decides that I don't belong there. Um, and so with all of this in mind, I was, I was furious. And as much as I was furious for myself, I was furious for my students because what were they supposed to, to, to get out of that, right? Um, they had never seen me like that. They had, we had gotten to know each other for over the course of a couple of weeks and they could tell that something was up, right? Um, and so it was a struggle. It was a big struggle to figure out exactly what I was gonna say to them, how I was gonna make sense of this shitty, shitty thing that had just been said to them. Um, and in that struggle, I actually was forced to think back uh, to why I became a scientist in the first place. And it led me to this point, actually the point where I, when I first realized that I was black. So it was kindergarten, I was five years old, and uh, it was recess time. And for some reason, I don't know why, we were having an indoor recess period. And my classroom had one of those like play kitchen areas, right? Uh, and so we did what like little kids do. We decided a couple of us were gonna play house. And uh, it got to the point where we were gonna figure out who was gonna be who. And one of my friends said, uh, a girl said, I'm gonna be the mom. And I thought, cool, uh, I'm gonna be the dad. I'm five, but I'm a mature five. It's gonna be great. Uh, we're gonna do this. And so I said to them like, hey, I'm gonna be the dad, is that cool? And without skipping a beat, one of the other boys said, no, you can't. And I, and I was kind of taken aback because I had no idea like why he would say that. And then I asked, I said, well, why can't I? And he said, well, because you're black. And it's hard to remember exactly what was going through my mind at that time, but I do remember how I felt. I was exposed and isolated and ashamed, and I, even though I had done nothing wrong. And then I looked around and it dawned on me like, holy shit, I'm the only person in this group who's not white. And, and apparently because of that, I can't even pretend to be the dad in a make-believe family. And by the time I like got my wits back about me, like everybody had started playing and, and, and I had to hold that with me. And, and I went back home later that day and I told my mom what happened and she had to explain to me, you know, she had to have the talk. Uh, not that talk, the, you know, <laughs> the talk that, that black parents have to have with their black kids. And she told me, you know, Devin, sometimes what you imagine for yourself is not what the world imagines for you. And sometimes what the world imagines for you is a lot less than what you deserve. But, but you have to keep imagining because the world is wrong. And I can, I can thank my mom uh, for a lot of things, that talk especially. But honestly, the, the thing that, oh God, please, anybody who knows my mom, never tell her this. But, <laughs> but the best thing she ever did was to introduce me to uh, Star Trek. 
And uh, so I'm pretty sure that that night, like many other nights, uh, my, my mom introduced me to Star Trek and, and she would let me stay up ex like late sometimes and we'd watch episodes of the original series until I would fall asleep or she would fall asleep sometimes. And uh, it was amazing. You know, like many scientists before me, I was an indoor kid. I was always a little bit more content sitting in my room playing with Legos, pretending to be like a, a prodigious inventor or a brilliant scientific mind who had just, would just unlock the keys to eradicating disease and starvation. And, and, and I fell in love with Star Trek because it, among other things, is such a, an amazing shining beacon that can show us like what we could be and, and how much potential for progress we have. See, Star Trek takes place in a world where poverty and disease and starvation haven't existed for generations, where people build starships that take them through the stars at unimaginable speeds, where, where we build medical devices that can heal injuries almost instantaneously. And, and something, even as a kid, it prompted me to think, like, oh, what are we going to have to do to make that a reality? I want to see that. And I want to be a part of it. I want to get us there, right? What is this? It's, well, it's science fiction. So I guess I, I guess I like science. Science is cool. OK, cool. But there, there was something else that was there. Or I, I think actually better, a better way to put it is that there's something else that wasn't there. See, also, Star Trek also took place in a world where racism and sexism and war were unheard of, where, where they were the exception and not the rule, except for a couple of really unfortunately designed costumes <laughs> and, so, and some really crappy scripts. Uh, well, these things were unheard of. And it was a place where, where the brash, sexy Iowan Captain Kirk would adventure alongside the sardonic and cool and logical half-alien Spock, where George Takei would play Hikaru Sulu, who would, who would pilot the Enterprise along with a cartoonishly Russian Pavel Chekhov, <laughs> where, where Scotty, the most aptly named Scotsman you could ever meet, would keep the ship running while the southern gentleman, Leonard Bones McCoy, would keep the crew running. Um, and there's one name that I, that I haven't gotten to yet, but uh, that's, that's Lieutenant Uhura, played by the illustrious Nichelle Nichols. And just for a little bit of context and, and why she's so important to me, Star Trek took, uh, it, it, it premiered in September of 1966. And that was, of course, in the middle of the, of the American civil rights movement of that time. Not that we're really out of it, but... <laughs> Here was this black woman, this black woman born in the fictional United States of Africa, being beamed, pun intended, into living rooms across the very real, very segregated United States of America. And, and she wasn't a nanny or a cook or a maid. She was a bridge officer on the flagship of an, in, of an interstellar defense force and exploration force. She was an engineer. She was a scientist. She was an expert in communications and linguistics. And she would save the lives of her crewmates and of humanity and of the galaxy. The day would just rest, uh, the, the fate of the day would rest on her shoulders. And 
on, on some extra special nights, my mother would let me stay up even later, and I got to watch uh, LeVar Burton in, in the first Star Trek spinoff series, The Next Generation. And he, uh, you might know LeVar Burton from, from Reading Rainbow, right? Uh, he played a man named Jordy LaForge, who was the chief engineer on a new Starship Enterprise with a new generation of explorers. And even as a kid, it wasn't lost on me that LeVar Burton, the man who played the enslaved Kunta Kente in the Roots miniseries of the 70s, was the same man who was in charge of the warp engine, which was the beating heart of the Enterprise. It was in one person a poetic almost poetic juxtaposition of, of where black folks like me had been and where we could be. So fast forward to now, uh, I still watch old episodes of Star Trek, albeit on Netflix instead of on like a local Fox affiliate or whatever I was, <laughs> was watching before. And... I'm try I made a I made a promise to myself when I was a, when I was a kid and I kept that promise. I became a scientist. Um, I'm trying to save the world by studying opioid addiction and teaching science to kids and, instead of you know saving the galaxy. But uh, most of my students are are brown like me. A lot of them are brown women like Lieutenant Uhura, and and a lot of them want to no all of them see themselves in a world that needs to be made better. And, and they want to be scientists. They want to use their science to make the world better. Which brings me back to that meeting. So still fuming, I, I took Tiana and Sylvia back to my lab bench. And I told them, look, what a, whenever somebody tells you that you can't bring your whole self to this, to science, that person is lying to you. If they ever say that you have to ignore one part of yourself in order to come to work, then they don't know what they're talking about. And so we spent the rest of the day uh, talking about identity and gender and science and discrimination. And um, I learned a lot about my students, but they also led me to realize something about myself, right? Um, Tiana told me that she wanted to work with me me in particular, because she was a young black woman looking for a career in science, and she knew that science has a very real, very terrible gender problem. But she had no idea how those things were going to come together, how her race was going to come together with her gender to make her, to make her life in science. And she was looking to me for answers on how to be a black person in academia. And that's an awesome, awesome responsibility. See, when I was a kid in, in kindergarten, I learned that I wasn't even safe from racism in my imagination. And I had to look to fictional heroes to figure out what I could be and come up with options for my own life. And as a teacher, I get to be that real, I get to be in the flesh, in front of somebody, actually living out their dreams, living out the best things that they could imagine for themselves. I could be somebody's Jordy. I could be somebody's Uhura, right? Only right here in front of them and not on TV. I can be part of somebody's yet unrealized future. Thank you.
That was Devin Collins. Devin is a neuroscientist, podcaster, and educator from the Midwest. Currently a PhD candidate at the Rockefeller University, he studies how common genetic variation affects the brain's responses to drugs and stress. He is one-third of the team behind Science Soapbox, a podcast about science and how it interacts with our personal and political lives. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. Virtue Labs is a new hair care brand with the goal of giving everyone the best hair scientifically possible. That means more bounce, more shine, more strength, and more life for your hair. And right now, you can only find it in Virtue Labs' line of shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Not to mention, each formula was created to address specific issues like heat damage, frizz, or thinning hair. In clinical testing, Virtue found a 67% reduction in frizz after four washes and a 95% reparation of split ends after five applications. Ready to experience it? Listeners can now try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping with the code COLLIDER. Visit VirtueLabs.com to place your order. It's time to start treating our hair with a little more humanity. It's time for Virtue. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Veronica Addis. It was recorded in June 2017 at our seventh anniversary show at Union Hall in Brooklyn, New York. The theme that night was love and science. About a year ago, I found myself in South Sudan. Um, It was two or three o'clock in the morning, and this was actually my third straight night awake. Um, three days, three nights. Um, and I was in the hospital. I was standing over a patient's bed and I was holding this freezing bag of blood and I was squeezing it and I was just trying to press the blood into her veins as fast as possible. And I was thinking, I will not let this woman die. To understand why I was there, um, I have to give you some background. So I am an OBGYN or obstetrician gynecologist. So I deliver babies. I um, take care of pregnant women. I do C-sections. And, you know, my whole life I knew that I would have an interesting career that I was passionate about and that I would pursue wholeheartedly. Um, But even though I spend most of my life um, or my time delivering babies, I wasn't actually super sure that I wanted to have them. You know, it seemed conventional, limited. It seemed like it derailed your career. Um, And I really hated it when people would say these condescending things to me like, well, you won't care so much about your career when you have children. Um, You know, like, if that's the case, then maybe I don't want them. Um, I don't know that that was true, but I just, I didn't like the prospect of being so limited by my biology. So I went to medical school. I did training in OBGYN, my residency, and then I ended up doing a lot of global health work, and that's how I ended up working with Doctors Without Borders, which is known by its French acronym, MSF. Um, And this was my third mission with MSF. Uh, We were in a town called Awil in South Sudan, which is in northern Balgazal, if anybody's familiar with that state. Um, And uh, we were in South Sudan because um, there was a need. So South Sudan used to be part of Sudan, if you're not familiar with the geography. It's the newest country in the world. Uh, Sudan was at chronic civil war for 50 years, and finally in 2011, there was a referendum, a peaceful referendum, that split the country into Sudan and South Sudan. Um, 
And that did not end the war. So the fighting continued in South Sudan. And so after 50 years, the country's really been decimated. There's almost no infrastructure at all, almost no educational system, almost no healthcare system, almost no government. And that means that the most vulnerable populations, which are pregnant women and children, are the most likely to die. And in fact, they were dying in very high numbers in this area. Um, and so MSF came in and they went into the Ministry of Health Hospital. They were invited and they took over these wards because the hospital needed help. There's very few trained personnel there. And so this was my third mission with MSF um, and I was the OBGYN. There are expats and there are local uh, workers. So I was the only expat OBGYN. I was actually the only surgeon. Uh, there were expat midwives, um, there were internal medicine doctors, pediatricians, logisticians, administrators, um, and then there were local midwives and nurses, but there were no surgeons. So that meant that if anybody needed a C-section, I had to be there. And if anybody needed had an obstetric emergency, it was all me. And that is how I ended up being awake for three days and three nights straight, because there were so many emergencies and so many C-sections, and it actually ended up being four days straight. So uh, there I was, and I had just come out of a C-section. I had delivered a woman's 12th child, because that's how it tends to go in South Sudan. Um, and she was okay, and I was looking forward to getting to sleep. Um, and the nurse came to talk to me, um, and she said, I have a patient I want you to evaluate. It was one of the local nurses. And I was, to be honest, I was kind of irritated. I was like, You're, they were supposed to call the midwife before me, and I was in a surgery, so if it's urgent, you really shouldn't be waiting for me. And besides that, I'm so tired. I am so tired, I don't even feel tired, which is the most dangerous kind of tired. And so I, I did not want to see this patient. But, you know, I, how can I go home if there's somebody potentially in need? So I said, okay, what's wrong with her? And she said, well, her hemoglobin level is two. Okay, some people understand what that means, <laughs> two. So hemoglobin is the concentration of red blood cells in your blood. Um, a normal for a woman is about 13. For pregnant women can, can get down to about 10 or 11 um, at seven, we transfuse because you're at risk of dying. And at two, almost anybody would be dead, except South Sudanese women for some reason. Um, I have seen people actually walk in with this hemoglobin level and be like, I don't feel great. Um, and then we transfuse them to like four, which is still dead level. And they go home because we don't have that much blood. And so like, I was like, okay. I mean, I, I guess like she could be really sick, but she could be fine. But let me let me go see her. So, um, I so I go over to see her, and she's um, lying on her side and she, in the fetal position, and she's um, apparently sleeping. And um, I said, you know, um, so I well, I I actually just kind of looked at her first, and she's very emaciated. But every pregnant woman and child in South Sudan is emaciated. And her belly looks a little small. The staff is telling me she's full term, but to me it looks like about 30 weeks, maybe seven months. So I turn her on her back, and I realize that she's gasping for air. <sighs> like that. So, oh my God, okay, wait, no, this is bad. This is not one of those just walk in and transfuse, it's fine. She's sick. So I have to figure out, is this acute or chronic? If it's acute, she's losing blood, and that's the reason that she's so anemic. If she's losing blood, where is it going? Well, usually, unless they were stabbed or something, it was vaginal bleeding. So I asked the staff, is she having any vaginal bleeding? They said no. So, okay, it could be chronic. I mean, I've seen people with this before, but they don't usually look like this. And she looks really sick for chronic. Women have 
everybody has severe malnutrition in South Sudan. They have con- multiple consecutive pregnancies. Um, life is really hard there. So it's possible, but then what's making her so sick? Okay. Um, there is one thing that could be causing um, her to have severe acute anemia that would make her so sick, but we wouldn't see the bleeding, and that's placental abruption. That's where the placenta tears off the uterus a little bit and bleeds, but it can get trapped behind the placenta, and so we don't see the bleeding come out. And so um, the staff has actually told me that the baby's dead, and so an abruption would be consistent with that. So I need to do an ultrasound to see if that's the case. So they bring over the ultrasound, and I I do it, and I I think I see some fluid. I'm not 100% sure, but it looks like there's fluid, and is it behind the placenta or is it by the liver? It's really hard to tell. It's not a great ultrasound. But either way, it would be bad, and I need to get this baby out because it really could be what's causing her to be so sick. So I do a vaginal exam to see if she's dilated, and actually she's fully dilated, 10 centimeters. She's ready to deliver. So um, I, one of the nurses actually scoops her up. Most people in South Sudan are over six feet tall. They're like six foot five. Um, this particular tribe is the Dinka tribe. They're very tall, so they scoop her up. She's tiny. So this, this nurse, uh, male nurse, most of the nurses and midwives are men there, scoops her up and carries her tiny body over to the maternity ward. And the maternity ward is four maternity beds all lined up next to each other. There's no privacy in South Sudan. There's not even an expectation of privacy. And they have foot rests. And so we put her feet, her legs up there, but she's so weak that she can't even hold her legs up. And so I have the nurses hold up her legs and we have her push. And because she's so weak, we help her by pulling with a vacuum. And the baby comes out really easily. It is dead. And the placenta comes out easily. But as soon as it comes out, I realize that her uterus isn't contracting. That's called uterine atony. And the uterus needs to go from about this to this in in seconds. And if it doesn't, the blood vessels are wide open and they're just pouring out blood. And a woman can lose her entire blood volume in a matter of minutes. It's actually the number one cause of death around the world for pregnant women. So what I do is I, um, sorry, I was about to get very vaginal. Um, I um, (laughs) put one hand into the vagina and I um, massage her uterus and I put the other hand on top of her abdomen and I massage. It's called a bimanual massage. It's actually one of the most life-saving techniques you can do. It's actually pretty simple. Um, but it tamponades the uterus until you can get medications on board and get it to contract. So I'm massaging and starting to call for medications. Um, and so we can give one dose every five minutes of various medications. So I'm calling for them. And then I realize, you know, this is bad. I mean, she has no blood almost, and she doesn't have much to lose. This is an emergency. I should be directing this as the senior most person in the room. So I asked the expat midwife, um, Cecile, uh, who, to come and do the bimanual massage. So she does. She takes over. And so I'm timing the medications and thinking about all the coordination. The blood arrives, and uh, they hang the first bag of blood. And uh, her mother comes in the room, and uh, the patient's mother And so I briefly turned to her, and I used a Dinka interpreter to tell her that I'm very sorry, but the baby's dead, and um, your your daughter is very sick, and we're just working on helping her. And so she says, I knew that the baby was dead. I'm not worried about the baby. Just please save my daughter. So we keep working. We give medications, and we're transfusing the blood, and that's how I end up just standing over her holding this freezing bag of blood. And I realize that she's getting very cold and actually hypothermic. And it's because the blood is so cold and we haven't been able, we haven't had time to warm it up properly. So I turn to the blood bank guy and I say, is there any way to warm up this blood? And he goes, 
um, very South Sudan, put it in your armpit. And so I didn't do that. I just, I just, we wrapped her in wool blankets and that tinfoil blanket that they give to marathoners that helps keep you warm. And, um, you know, what are you going to do? Right. So, uh, so we're squeezing the blood in and Cecile is massaging and we're giving medications and we get to the limit of our medications. We've given everything that we can give. And at this point, the only thing that we can do is a hysterectomy, but she is not going to survive that surgery. So we're at our last resort. And just as a temporizing measure, we put in a balloon into her uterus. So Cecile prepares the balloon, and that should give us a tamponade and hopefully give us time. But as she goes to insert the balloon, she can't get it in because the uterus has contracted. (sighs) Finally. (laughs) Oh, my God. So we're relieved. The bleeding has stopped. And we can finally take a minute to figure out what's going on. Um, because we, we haven't even been able to think about it. We've been so busy just like trying to save her life. So the local midwives are actually great and they are now kind of taking care of her and we can leave her with them for a couple minutes and we step outside to just take a breath and say, what is going on? So it didn't seem like abruption. There wasn't any blood behind the placenta. It could be preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure in pregnancy, but her blood pressure is not high, but maybe she's so sick that now it's back down to normal, which is low. And I don't know, we'll put it on our list. It could be sepsis, it could be HELP syndrome, it could be Kala Azar, it could be tuberculosis, it could be so many things. And that's what's hard. Um, in South Sudan, they don't have prenatal care, so I don't know what was wrong with her or if there were problems in the pregnancy. And they have so many diseases that I've never seen before that I didn't train to see um, and wouldn't know how to recognize. So. We just need to try to figure it out, and we have to figure it out fast because whatever is hurting her could still be going on. So we send, we ask for a bunch of labs, and you can't get that much in South Sudan. It's not like here. And so we just fill out whatever we can that we think will help, and we give the list to the midwives. We come back to check on her, and she actually seems better. The first unit's gone in. She's not gasping anymore. She's quiet and calm, still weak. Um, and the second unit's going to start Um And so we're relieved that we've kind of gotten through this period. And I realized that if I'm going to take care of her in the morning, it's probably three or four at this point, um, I need to get some rest. And so we give strict instructions to the local midwives. They're going to hover over her and they're going to call us for anything and they're going to get the second unit running and draw the blood. So Cecile and I take the car back to the um, living compound and it felt like as soon as I lay down, Cecile was knocking on my door um, and she's pounding and she's saying, Veronica, she's very sick. We have to go. So I throw some clothes on. We go running to the car and this white MSF SUV is just careening through these really, really bumpy roads um, and just to get us there faster. And as soon as the car, like pretty much before the car stops, we've thrown the doors open and we're racing to labor and delivery. What's going on? And we get to the maternity ward and she's there. And she's dead. I I couldn't believe it. I I was not going to let her die. And I failed. And everyone is standing around. And it's just happened right now. And they're just stunned. And the staff are just standing there staring at her. And her tiny body is still wrapped in these wool blankets and this tinfoil. And her mother is standing at her head in shock. And what happened? The staff 
can't really figure it out. They say that the second unit went in and she actually started to feel better. She um, started talking normally. She wasn't slurring her words anymore. She said her chest pain and shortness of breath were gone. She actually wanted to sit up and she was talking to her mother. They made her lie down to rest, but she looked okay. And then all of a sudden her oxygen saturation went from 100% to 9% to zero and she died. I don't know what this means and I don't know what she has, but I know I'm, I'm about to cry. And, you know, I don't cry very much anymore. I've, I've seen a lot and I a little bit lost my ability to cry, especially in front of other people. Um, kind of wish I had it more, but I am, I'm realizing I'm about to cry and I don't want them to see me cry. So I step out of the room and I cry and Cecile follows me and I see that she's crying too. And one of the local midwives, Matiang, who's just the most sensitive soul I've ever met, is also very upset. And we gather ourselves together and we go back in. Cecile has to go see a woman who's delivering twins. Um, and I go back to see this patient. And she's still there, still wrapped in those blankets. And her mother is there still. But now she's crying and that is really striking because women in South Sudan almost never cry. I don't. I actually don't think I've ever seen anyone cry. And they've been through. I've seen them be through horrible things, losing babies, hysterectomy, major surgery, complications. They're incredibly stoic, and I don't know if it's the environment or how hard their lives are, but or just cultural. But I don't. You don't see them cry. And so the fact that her mother's crying, she's not just crying. The tears are just pouring down from her eyes and then they're pooling on her prominent cheekbones and then they're just cascading down. It's like a waterfall. And as soon as she sees me, she looks right at me and she starts speaking in Dinka and I, I don't understand. So I call an interpreter over who says, she's saying that she will never blame you because she saw how hard to work you worked to save her daughter. And she knows that you tried and I started crying, and I said, tell her, tell her that I did everything, everything that I could, and it wasn't enough, and I'm sorry. Sometimes you do your best, and it's not enough. And... That mission was was really hard. I lost another patient that I really cared about. And, um, you know, I got sick and I lost 10 pounds and um, ended up actually getting medevaced at the end of my mission. And when I got back to New York, um, MSF has you meet with a, a therapist to process the experience and make sure you're okay. And that's great. So I sat down with Dorothy, the therapist, and she said, tell me about your mission. So I said, you know what, it was really hard. Um, I had these interpersonal conflicts that you always have when you're working and living with people 24-7. They were very stressful, and I think it made the physical toll of it harder and the maternal deaths harder. So we talked through the interpersonal conflict. She was really supportive. And then she said, tell me about the maternal deaths. And I just burst into tears. And I cried for an hour in her office. I thought I was okay. 
I, I always think I'm okay. But, you know, I've seen maternal death before. I've seen several. And I know how it goes. You know, I know how they sink a hook into your heart when you work that hard to save them. And when they die, it brings you down. I know that you need to just mourn and you need to give it time and and eventually you put it in this box that you carry around with you forever. But you're okay. But I was not okay yet. In fact, I was depressed for a good month after I got back. But I didn't realize it until I was in Dorothy's office. Um, And so I told her about this death and the other one that broke my heart. And she listened and she said, what are you thinking about when you reflect on these experiences? I mean, it's sad, but why did it feel so personal? And I thought about it and I realized that in both of the cases where the patient died, the patient's mother was there watching her own daughter die giving birth. And I thought about my own mother who loves me so fiercely like more than anything I've ever seen in my life. And I think about what if that was me and my mother had to watch me die, giving birth. I I can't even handle it. And Dorothy points out that I've spent a lot of my life taking care of pregnant women and, and helping them deliver their babies safely and that I've made a lot of sacrifices to do it. And, you know, this fire in my belly is really a profound anger that women have to die in childbirth. And so Dorothy says, what does motherhood mean to you? And the question goes so deep. I can't even answer her for a few minutes. I realize that I have been thinking about motherhood all wrong. Motherhood is love. It's fierceness. It's sacrificing yourself for your child. Motherhood is taking care of someone else. It's putting their needs before yours. Motherhood is powerful in this way I had never appreciated before. In many ways, my my own career, taking care of others, is a form of motherhood. I don't feel anymore like it's this biological need that will limit my life and my destiny. Motherhood is something that I could be really good at, something that I'm kind of already doing. Motherhood is part of me. Thank you. That was Veronica Addis. Veronica is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist who has worked with Doctors Without Borders on assignments in South Sudan and Jordan. She is currently an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology and director of Global Women's Health at the New York University School of Medicine, where she has created an educational and research partnership with Corley Boo Teaching Hospital in Ghana. 
She is also the director of the Empower Clinic for Survivors of Sex Trafficking and Sexual Violence on the Lower East Side. If you enjoyed today's stories or are a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb the rankings and that helps new listeners find the podcast. And we really want to share these stories with as many people around the world as we can. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, and Nissa Greenberg. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting these shows and to mothers everywhere. Because, wow. Thanks for listening. Virtue Labs is a hair care brand with a vision to give everyone their best hair with the help of an incredible new protein called Alpha Keratin 60KU. Alpha Keratin 60KU is a whole human protein that's identical to the keratin in your own hair. As a result, it can fill in cracks from damage to change your hair's quality and appearance forever. Try Alpha Keratin 60KU exclusively in Virtue Labs' shampoos, conditioners, and styling products. Just visit VirtueLabs.com and use the code COLLIDER to try Virtue at 10% off and get free shipping. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.